Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Open Source Workplace Weekly Podcast, where I'm your host, Steve Todd, Global Head of Workplace at NASDAQ and also the founder of opensourceworkplace.com. Each week we talk to industry leaders, experts, and get their opinions on things that are going on in the media, maybe something they've published, getting their insights, get their views, and really having a casual conversation on some deep, meaningful topics. Uh, today's no different, so what are we going to talk about? I'm going to pull up the, today's agenda. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Chris Dimming. He is an applied anthropologist with a passion for design research and the workplace. And uh, one of the things you get to learn very quickly when you interact with Chris is there are certain words that, for me, I struggle to say with my tongue twisting, given the, the length and the length of syllables that are in there. So I apologize ahead if I do mispronounce or miss miss say certain things. So what are we going to talk about? What is applied anthropology? We've had Chris on before where he's went through this, explained this to me and obviously the audience, and we're going to go back over this. People and culture, culture and collaboration, what do those mean for the organization? What do those mean from an anthropologic anthropologist perspective? There I go. So I did save ahead of time. So there we go. And then anthropology methods for workplace strategy. Uh, and I think once Chris explains what applied anthropology is, we're going to see the immediate connection between workplace strategy. So before I do, I'm going to welcome in Chris. Chris, welcome. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for welcoming me on to the, the chat today. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, as I say, we've had you on before. It's always a great conversation. Uh, it stimulates a lot of thought. And uh, yeah, and before we got on, you're just saying how busy you are to the, uh, the start of the year. So, so what have you been up to, Chris, since we last spoke? Well, it's it's been a bit of a ride. I'm, I'm helping. I'm doing three things. I'm helping out this workplace uh, management software provider called Facility Quest by helping them to understand what types of data might be needed during and after COVID nineteen for software purposes. I'm also um, helping out a consultancy called the Curve AI. I recently joined them as a collaborator. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring a people-centered approach to workplace strategies. So I've joined them on an ad hoc collaborative basis. And I've recently started working with a, uh, a global commercial real estate company on helping them to figure out uh, well-being and uh, mental health issues within the context of the long-standing effects of COVID-19. So that's quite a diverse topic base. Uh, it just shows you, in essence, if you think about the study of what you've done, Chris, what you, you know, what you do, what you understand things to be, and actually there's so many applications into the workplace, into the real estate market and the value that you're going to bring. So I'm really excited. Congrats on all those initiatives. And uh, I'm sure you will continue to spread your wings uh, as you go. And sort of, I guess it's, it's also fair to say the backdrop to this conversation was a paper you published. And we'll put links in the description below where folks can actually go and, and take a look and read it. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a long document, but it's yeah. so thoughtful. It's, it's so provoking. I have so many questions for you. And as I said before we came on the air, I have things that I want to go and research. And there's elements of what you've said and the words you've used that I'm going to be taking and I'm going to be using going forward. So I will be stealing your material. So thank you for sharing. But uh, so let's, <laughs> let's start off, Chris, with really from the outset, you know, what is anthropology? So anthropology is the study of people and culture within context, specifically um, social contexts and within the context, within sort of the backdrop that the way that we interact with each other, that our practices and behaviors, they're different depending on where we are. And so anthropologists look at culture. We look at 
culture as a set of ideas and a set of behaviors that is influenced by um, our surroundings, by the geographic context we're in, by the uh, by the social setting. And so culture as a, because it's contextual, it emerges and it changes. And so anthropologists are very suitable actually, not just looking at what people do, but why they do it and then how what they're doing is possibly changing. And so what forms of culture are emerging? So, I mean, we just take what you just said there, right? So culture emerges from what people do. It differs from place to place, right? Does that yeah. mean culture can feel different to everybody? Well, I think, so th the interesting thing about culture is that it's subjective. And so it's, culture isn't a hard thing. Culture is this sort of sticky, it's this kind of invisible discourse, which emerges. And it's because it's ideas that are looped on, that are kind of lumped into one frame, it's possible to have different perceptions of something. And so right. I think if we're looking at my uh, my PhD, what I did was I looked at um, Kosovo Albanian national identity and being Kosovo Albanian can be different to different people. And so, but how are all these perspectives grouped under Kosovo Albanian identity and what they are? And so that's kind of what I did. And that's often what anthropologists do is we take this thing like, for example, collaboration. If we were to look at it with the context of workplace, we'd want to understand, first of all, what values people had regarding collaboration. How do they view it? How were these views different um, across an organization, across a department? And then how do these different values map onto behaviors, practices, how we collaborate? So that's really how we view culture. And that's how culture from anthropological perspective is understood. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you, you explain it as ethnography. So apologies, I'm butchering words and uh, it's, I'm being really conscious of the fact that I'm butchering words, so I apologize. So what is ethnography? Ethnography is a method that anthropologists <laughs> developed to understand culture because culture is really symbolic, right? And to look at culture, you really have to get underneath what people are doing. And so ethnography, first of all, it's an account that an anthropologist produces on culture, on a culture within a place and a time. Uh, but it's more than that, to produce that account it entails certain methods. And those methods involve participant observation, which is observing and immersing yourself in the space, also interviewing. So you're, you have kind of what people are doing and how people are behaving and the patterns of behavior, but then you also need to understand why. And so you need to ask because what someone says and what someone does are two very different things. And so anthropologists use those methods. There are qualitative anthropologists also might use quantitative methods like surveys or more macro forms of data collection, depending on what the problem is. But you do all of these things to get an immersive understanding of behavior, trying to look at what people are doing and why they're doing it. And within, if we're in the context of culture, what are the different, like how do people live out their lives? What, how are these things different from each other? How are they similar? And how is, how do overall, is that thing we're asking about, how is it viewed? And then what forms of collaboration, if going back to collaboration, what forms of collaboration are emerging? So if we go back to where it's observation, like everyone's working from home, how do you 
perform that observation? Yeah, so that's a, a so before COVID-19, what an anthropologist would have done is an anthropologist would have been able to just go into a physical workplace and observe and participated and ask people questions. That's different now in this context in uh, remote work. One way that you can do it, there are quite a few actually methods that are taken from user experience research and design research that can be used in workplace strategy. One of them is something called mobile ethnography. And so mobile ethnography essentially refers to the use of a smartphone to collect data. And so you're not using it to spy on people. What you're doing is you want to understand how people are caring about tasks. So you might ask someone with the app, you might prompt them to do something, record that they did it. And maybe you also might ask them to send a picture of their workspace or send some a picture that represents their day. And those things can be sent through the app. And there are multiple things that you can do using smartphone technology that capture everyday practices and what you do throughout your job when you're communicating with others. There's, in addition to diary studies, which um, essentially you're asking someone to keep a record of what they're doing throughout the day. You, in addition to diary studies and mobile ethnography, you can also even do what's called netnography, which is using internet platforms and internet sites like Facebook, LinkedIn. You can use that to get insight into what people are doing, and especially because we're spending so much of our time online right now. Something like LinkedIn or maybe something like Slack would be an, a resource to consider because a lot of the interactions, a lot of the work is being done on those platforms. So those are different ways. And then, I mean, the obvious route is to do interviews by Zoom. And so, I mean, that, that happens as well. So there are definitely a lot of uh, ways right now to do ethnography without doing it strictly in person. It's really interesting some of the uh, ideas you come up with. And just, just a quick one, I mean, if someone sends you a picture of their work environment, what are you trying to learn from that environment? Well, the way that I see pictures is you will definitely understand like what tasks they're doing, what you'll be able to think about what materials they need. You'll also be able to look at the circumstances. And so what other context, how is home life merging into work? So that's definitely there. But the way that I see photos personally as I see them as a representation. They're showing you something. And so the question is really, why are they showing you this view of their home workspace or their day? Why are they showing something else? And then once you get enough of those, and once you merge those photos with interviews or with a survey, then you can that starts to give you a picture of why they chose to show it to you and what does that representation of their environment say about the work and what environments would be needed for the future. That's interesting. So then obviously to do that interpretation, you also need a deep understanding about the tasks and the function that those individuals who are sending those image also do. So that has to be like a much 
deeper understanding. I mean, I, I have to imagine employees who are not complicit are probably going, well, I'm not going to mm-hmm. send my stuff because I don't want you to the organization <laughs> to see whatever this is. Right. And I totally understand that point of view, but it's really interesting to see the other, the way you're looking at it and how you're trying to interpret the information based on what you know and understand that those individuals are doing. Um, and I guess, you know, most, I guess the, the, baseline that everyone's using today is surveys and obviously this then provides you a much deeper understanding of surveys but you know we're putting so much weight so much value on these surveys we've seen it in the media it's it's prompting headlines what sort of caution if you would provide mm-hmm. a caution would you take for people who are trying to really understand how their employees are working today or they're trying to think about how do we migrate back to the office what sort of things would you give us guidance on those things well, I think focusing on surveys, I've noticed that too. I think the survey is almost a default in the workplace industry, and I understand why. I mean, you can, it, it takes about 15, 20 questions, hopefully, not more. So that's a piece of advice 15 or 20 questions, probably about five or 10 minutes for someone to answer it. But what you're doing is it's actually, uh, you're, you send out a survey, you'll get what the person wants you to hear and what or that what they think you want to hear. <laughs> and so it could be if you're asking about happiness, then you're first of all, you're correlating happiness with productivity. But someone might go, well, yeah, if I want to have a workspace in the future when we get back, I should twist my answers in a certain way. And I mean, the way that I see surveys is that it's one method, but it's not a method that should be focused on. There are other ways of going about it. Anthropology and methods associated with applied anthropology are part of that, is that there are different ways of looking at the problem at hand. And so surveys, I mean, they tell you what's happening. They can give you a quantifiable picture of what employees are saying, what they want to say. You can talk about types of interactions, perhaps, or numbers of interactions, or you can look into types of tasks they're doing, or if you're doing product design, you can look at features and what features you need. But that is just one picture. You're looking at a bigger pattern with a survey. And you put, in order to make sure that your impressions aren't twisted, you also need to look at why you need to go underneath those survey findings. So, you know, and, and it's great. And I think that's where you see, take, I'm just taking on take your happiness example. You know, if you take that happiness example, then you're able to see the image of the work environment that somebody has that all of a sudden provides so much more context mm-hmm. for really how people are answering, right? It's a real deep yeah. level of, of what's going on. So how does then, so obviously we have talked a little bit about anthropology, the various ways to do it, and then workplace, workplace strategy. So how did the two merge in your eyes? Well, I became first interested in workplace strategy about a couple of years ago when I realized that I wanted to leave academia and consider myself an applied anthropologist. And I did that because I wanted to have more impact since I come like toward the depths of my past. I come from an activist background. And so I wanted to basically implement anthropological methods out like in a more of a fast paced and collaborative setting. I didn't really know what that meant. I first looked into user experience research and a lot of anthropologists work for organizations like Google, but very quickly someone said, well, Chris, you're interested in the built environment because my PhD was on public space in, in Costco. So she said, you're interested in the built environment. I said, yeah. 
nurturing your personal relationships and how they're formed, right? And I said, yeah, I am. And, and then culture and how culture merges. And she goes, well, actually, I know someone in, um, in workplace strategy. And I'm like, what's workplace strategy? <laughs> and so after, um, after talking with that person, then after looking into it, I found some of the early white papers by DGW, Working Beyond Walls. And they, what they showed very clearly was the role that user insights can play for workplace design, but more importantly, the importance of understanding how organizational culture emerges within the workplace environment and how collaboration between different teams and within teams happens. And so if you're talking about collaboration, you're really talking about a relational process. The relational to an anthropologist means the relationships that are formed, the networks. And so you're talking about an understanding of the networks that are being formed, but also culture and how culture emerges, and that links directly with an anthropologist with an anthropologist viewpoint on culture. And do you think culture then, just to sort of take in that thread, and I want to come back to workplace strategy, but I just want to think on the culture of what you just said. Do you think culture can be pushed on, or do you think it's a bottoms up? Hmm. I think, I mean, the thing about culture is that it's very holistic and it's built and shaped through different means. One way that culture can be shaped is through outside. And so, I mean, if we step outside of the workplace environment for a second, I mean, we're not just workers or employees. We are people who are living. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. You're in um, New York. And we also have different histories. I'm from the United States and I'm technically Southern. And you're from, I think I'm from Manchester, England? Belfast, Belfast, but I did Belfast. spend time in Manchester, yes. Oh, right. Yes. Sorry about that. No, 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 that's fine. I, uh, I don't take offense <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I love Manchester, so we're good. Yeah, but I mean, there's there, there are different histories and different pasts there, and each of those locations is shaped by recent things that have happened. And so that's all there within the context of how we're working. That's a political and social context, and we're talking about the pandemic. There's also an economic context due to the recession, and there's an economic context regarding our income levels and our education um, backgrounds. There are a bunch of things that are happening, but that and that's all goes into culture and that goes into how we view things like collaboration. That's how we relate with others. But if we kind of zoom in a bit on the organization there, then culture itself can be shaped by leadership. And when people say that it all comes from the top, I mean, in a sense that's true because what leaders say and how they act, it's what people play, leaders play a big role in shaping what is permissible and what types of behavior aren't. And they play a role in those norms and they play a role in also articulating how they want the culture to be. And those are very public discourses and public ways of communicating that can shape what's possible, but they're not the only source. Leaders are very powerful that way they can kind of set the agenda and they can articulate how an organization might be seen. But again, they're not the only ways that this happens. And so an anthropologist would also be looking at, when you're looking at culture also, how do people on the same team, on the marketing team collaborate with each other? How do they interact and how do they interact with people in the sales team or in the software development team? Are there, is there friction? What do people can, compete? How do people compete? Why do they feel like they need to compete? Or if it's a very collaborative culture where there is lots of information sharing, what's behind that and what values are driving that? Is there a perspective that what is good for um, that 
basically, if we all put into something, we'll all get something out of it. And so therefore, we should all work into it together. Does that kind of perspective exist? And then what underlying values are underneath that? And so that's what an anthropologist would look at. Really, I mean, culture is constantly changing. It's dynamic. The way it's dynamic is because what people do changes. And so there's a idea of cultural consensus. And so once something I mean, culture is shared. And so a value is cultural if people across your group have it. And so that means there's a degree of consensus, but those values can change and shift depending on what's happening within the organizational context. Um, what do you think is the biggest influence on those shifts? So for example, if someone's evaluating their organization today, and they're looking at, cl at mm -hmm. culture, they're looking at collaboration, collaboration, they're looking at their people, and they want to get to a end state they want to sort of get people to wherever that is right so how can that study and how then can you not manipulate encourage use whatever word you mm. want to get to that sort of desired outcome mm. i think if we're just to focus more on the present in order to to look at the future which, yeah. which is which is part of my argument that joke um the way that we should do it i mean there are certain events that are common across what would be referred to as the, the ecosystem. And something that I'd be looking at right now would be the impact of COVID-19. And I'd be very interested in remote working and I'd be interested in what kinds of shifts, what kinds of um, conflicts, what kinds of discussions are being generated as a result of remote working and who can remote work and who isn't. And there are events like that. I mean, there's this fascination in anthropology about crisis. And the it isn't, the fascination is partially because of the human impacts that crisis has. But more and more so, it's about crisis being a rupture in everyday life. It's something that everyone has to face. It causes a great deal of uncertainty. It unearths these structures that we're used to dealing with. And so you end up dealing with them in different ways. And so anthropologists will look at something in the lens of crisis and use that as a frame and then think about what practices are emerging as a result of it. So if we're looking at drivers, an event like COVID-19 and remote and the introduction of remote working and just the health impacts from COVID-19 is incredibly significant. But again, I think if we go into the smaller setting, I mean, I would definitely want to look at meetings and how meetings happen. And what are the power dynamics between different people in meetings? Who can say what and where do they happen? And what can they say? And why do they say it? And how many people are in these meetings? And what are, who's more connected in these meetings? Who has the a bigger sort of network of collaborators and who doesn't because this all goes into this is about their social capitalists all goes into their ability to use resources within the network and so i mean this is all very when you look at meetings in particular and if you look at how meetings change that can give you a large insight into culture hmm. and so whenever you whenever you see that there are those that have larger social capital versus those that don't how do you mm. interpret that and what does that mean for the organization well i think social capital is the way that i see it is 
it's the resources that you have that are contained by your network. And so it's your ties with other people, but it's what the, what's that combination of that ties, what they can do to help you accomplish their goals. And so someone with more social capital than someone else, it would be easier for them to care about their task, but also for them to, in a sense, manipulate the direction of the work, the way they see it fit. And that can happen in, in multiple ways. And so social capital is really a socioeconomic resource. Mm. And for those who have less social capital, is that something that you would encourage those to increase? Or is, is it seen as a negative? Is it seen as a positive? What, what, what's your view on that? Uh, the way that I see social, uh, social capital is that if, um, so there are studies that show the impact of social capital on well-being and how increased social capital leads to decreased feelings of loneliness and decreased um, isolation. And there was one study that showed higher social capital with a decrease in likelihood of suicide. And so being able to increase your social capital, being able to grow your network is associated with a better stand, with a higher standard of living. Mm. And so I would say that it's definitely social capital within organizations is definitely important to consider. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, so I, I want to do tie back to workplace strategy because that's, that's obviously everything we're here to talk about. So whenever <laughs> you think of workplace strategy, how would you define it? The way that I see workplace strategy is arranging people, space, and technology and also process with each other. But particularly, I think these days it's important because the way that space is, it's space is essentially, there was an article came out in, Newport, in the New York Times which talked about space being a consumer product. The office, in order to be relevant, will need to be able to facilitate collaboration because if it can't, then for those people who are, quote, knowledge workers, if the office doesn't do what it needs to do, then why would they need to go in the first place? And how would organizations get the benefits from proximity? And so I think I see workplace strategies about making spaces relevant for those people, making spaces able to facilitate collaboration, but then also looking across the workplace ecosystem, looking at hybrid working and looking at policies and looking at the technology and the virtual platforms we have to align them with um, the organization's goals, but also just making the work experience better for those people who are in the organization. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting. And then the thing that goes through my head is, and uh, I'm sure you've thought about this deeply, we're in this environment. Um, there are, I almost look at three broad buckets, right? There are those that are struggling, be it organizations, be it businesses, be it teams, be it individuals, right? This environment does not work for them. There's this other group of mm -hmm. people actually didn't skip a beat, right? Just in office, out of office, it just doesn't matter. The business is doing well, individuals are doing well. Then there's this other group that actually they're profiting, they're flying because of this environment. They're just, they've taken off. And as we think about that as an organization, as a, as a huge, as a big, one big organism, right? And we start opening up offices, right? What guidance would you give to companies to understand those three groups? and provide them with guidance on how to bring and open up offices so there is no unintended consequences. So if they're, they're actually able to get one-on-one -on -one and get to three, where in essence, those that are thriving have the ability to continue that thriving, where those yeah. who are struggling have the ability to integrate back to the office so they can get to that point, be it equal or a thriving state again. I would actually suggest that organizations, you don't, that organizations start with an anthropologist mindset in the sense that you're looking at it from this perspectives of 
how the employees view and relate with each other. And just stepping back to how people view culture. Again, culture can be viewed in different ways. It, if you're looking at collaboration, some may see their ways of collaboration as being different. They may be more outgoing. They may want to be able to go in person to network to, and that's how they carry about their they carry about their task, right? Because they're using the resources they have. And but some people may prioritize focused work, where they may rather go and work on something and then present it and then have a conversation about it and. As part of that, I mean, there, there, then there are those who are thriving and those who aren't. And so I think, I mean, the the, fir the first way to go about it would be to suggest that we give people choice, right? Um, but the question is, uh, what choices do you provide? And so that's where you need to understand um, the different people within the organization, how they view culture. So then you can look at what choices you would actually get because one thing to say yes we're going to do an agile working environment we'll get people to do what they want but then the let people work how they want but then the question is then what choices will you provide and what settings will you provide and that's where you need to actually take a much more granular perspective and look at how different groups within the organization from the department are working and try to understand their everyday habits yeah and that's why i think you know whenever we look at you said it before right it's people it's process it's technology and it's place which do you think is probably the most misunderstood or the most important factor within those four elements well i think i mean the people factor is one that people factor is one that's being focused on a lot these days and i think that it does start with the people it, it starts with what they need to do and it starts with culture and how it emerges through what people do but one thing I'd like to bring up is actually place and not place because the way that I see place is different than perhaps other people see. I see it place as being a specific location in space that has subjective meaning for the people who use it. Place has an identity and space in a sense doesn't. Space is more like a category. Space is like public space and how we behave in public spaces it's a very broad discussion when you talk about space. I and mean, when we're talking about space in the built environment context, it often boils down to types of space, meeting rooms, or the cafeteria, or the focus group settings. Again, types of space, if we're looking at open offices, you're looking perhaps the open offices being public space, but still space. But the thing is, you need to also look at place. And what role does that meeting room have for the people who use it? What do they associate the meeting room with? What perspectives is the meeting room associated with? What history, what past history of interactions is the meeting room associated with? Because if you have perspective on that, then, you, then you'll start to understand how employees view the space as well, because the place is very significant as being almost like an anchor for culture. Yeah, it's interesting, but I guess the challenge right now is those places are not being used. So how do we measure, yeah. how do we observe, how do we understand how those are going to be relevant going forward? And I think that's the that's the biggest challenge, right? There's so many unknowns right now. The observation is going to be a huge element to whatever we decide to go. What's your view on organizations? Obviously, most organizations are going to be very transparent in what they want to do to their employee, you know, for their employees. But actually, what level of transparency do you think it needs to be in a sense of quick decisions, slow decisions, very directive, prescriptive? What do you think is the best solution or the best way to sort of move forward with that thinking? 
I'll start off by focusing on the cultural standpoint, and then I'll move a little bit more broadly. So first of all, I would say that ways of tra that transparency even differs within organizational context. Some organizations might have a culture of being transparent, of openly discussing changes that are happening, openly discussing ways that a shift might occur. So if we're looking at change management, then it wouldn't be just saying something's happening, then maybe more into why something is, is happening and more of the context around that thing is happening. That might be part of an organization's culture already. Um, but for varying reasons, there might be some organizations where people feel a little bit more closed off, where there's a bit more secrecy and where there's less willingness to go out and describe why something is happening, not less what. And for the reason is that a whole bunch of other things could be happening as part of that organization's context and as part of the history, basically of how people have been interacting with each other, how work has happened, how their work has changed. This all goes into essentially, and then power relations and hierarchy, this all goes into the ways that transparency happens or doesn't happen. And so I think that should be taken into account from a leadership standpoint is in what kind of culture do you have? And if you're trying to change your culture in a different way, if you're trying to make it more transparent, then it's about using imagery and words that refer to transparency and about acting in a way which incentivizes and creates that perception of transparency going forward. That, um, that being said, I think if you're if we're talking about the transformation to the office and about how I mean how we're going to return to work if we're going to be we're returning to work, um, and I think that requires a bit more openness. I think that I would assume I wouldn't want to say speak for anyone, but I would assume that there might be in some cases some unease and uncertainty about how the transformation to how the return to work is going to happen. People may have been enjoying their time at home or they may not, but it's another change. And then um, if there's going to be a return to the office and it would be, really be about articulating why that is and then what benefits will there be, but really what's the concern there and what's the importance of the office and being able to communicate that I think will be crucial. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, it, it really is such a challenge, I think, for, for leadership, for, for, for organizations to really ponder this. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anybody does. And that's why I think there is so many views and opinions and, and perspectives on this. But it does, as you said, vary company to company and what their actual objectives are, you know. But as we as we wrap up here, Chris, is there, I mean, what at the moment as you look at the horizon and, and sort of things that you're working on and what you're seeing today what are the things that sort of excite you and perk you up about the opportunities that are ahead of you right now the way that i see hybrid working is i see it as being full of possibility because it, hybrid is essentially whatever the organization wants it to be hybrid is a combination of different things and that's what that's all hybrid is and so that opens up possibilities where if organizations are willing to face it you can really create a workplace that is contextual and that fits, the, it's almost a context-centered mm. workplace. And if you do that, then that can allow for much more transformations to happen within the organization about the, regarding your organizational culture and the way that you work and just to overall improve um, employees' well-being and create more profound experiences. If you focus on the context 
and you use the possibilities provided by hybrid working to do that, if you're more imaginative and you're looking at what the workplace can be and mapping onto that and how people could be working and mapping onto that, then there's so much more potential to be grasped. And I think that that potential is there for organizations to really seize if they're willing to go there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just want to follow one more thing. So then, so how do, how do companies get to that point, right? Because to be descriptive, to be um, explained to an organization what hybrid means, what the hybrid means to every employee, <laughs> such a challenge, right? And, yeah. and and I believe you're right that that's where most states, that most companies say the state, the, the sort of the work state, the workplace, the place of work where people want it to uh, eventually finish up. How do, how do they get to that? How do they get to that point, you know? Well, I think not to toot the horn of applied anthropology or anything, but I think that the way to do it is really to start with understanding um, how employees are doing, start to look at the ground level and look at how work is happening, how people experience their work and how their relationships with each other form and then understand the organizational culture. And so again, looking at what people are doing, but also why they're doing it. And if you have this and you have an understanding to build other things on, so you know what kinds of spaces you need to provide and you know even what kinds of branding or kinds of, if we're looking at um, more digital experiences or incorporating virtual technology, not just as a, not just in as platforms, but also maybe into the workplace somehow in design, that if you look, if you understand the culture, then you can understand really what you need to provide around that. I think that's really the first step is, um, it's kind of, in a way, it's taking it simple, really. You start with what's happening around you and then you build out. Mm. Yeah, no, no, it's it's great, Chris. And look, I appreciate uh, your time. I appreciate you sharing and getting your thoughts on paper. It's a great read. As I said, from the outset, it stimulated a lot of thought in my head. There are a lot of takeaways that I'm certainly going to use and I'm going to steal those ideas and I'm going to pass them off as my own. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and and folks, if you want to read it too, there are links, uh, as I said in the outset, um, in the description below where, where you can go and, and actually access Chris's report, which provides a lot of context. Chris goes, actually goes through the process of how to apply these things and how to actually run the program yourself. So it really is a, a great resource. Uh, Chris, look, as always, thank you. It's it's uh, it's great connecting with you, great chatting with you. I always learn from you, so thank you, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I always enjoy talking with you as well, and I enjoyed our conversation today. Great, great, great. Thank you. And, and folks, if, uh, if you watched all the way through, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, do subscribe, hit that notification bell, so you're alerted to all upcoming uh, future videos. But for now, thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Have